Hallelujah. Yes, O oh Lord, we thank you that the answers to this prayer can come even in our service today by means of your Spirit's use of the grace of gathering in the name of Jesus and worshiping our holy and majestic and sovereign God. You in all of your glory, your majesty, and your power and authority are to be lifted up and extolled in the presence of your people and in all the earth as the author, finisher, creator, savior, the one who governs, directs, and upholds all things according to the word of your power. And thus, in the worship of Jesus Christ, we find our heart corrected and our perspective changed. And we remind our souls that we are small and you are great, that we must decrease, you must increase, that in you and you alone is hope, Lord, for all eternity, that we might be saved from our sins, washed, Lord, in the presence of the Holy Spirit by the power of the blood of Jesus to be presentable before the throne of grace. And Lord, in the presentation of your word and the proclamation of the same, we recognize its power to wash, the washing of the water of the word, the purifying effect of the truth and grace proclaimed in your holy scripture. May it provide for us a corrective so that things that we hold to believe or have entertained or been tempted by in our hearts would be rejected and would uh, turn sour in our mouth, that we would spit out the things of this world, the lukewarm promises of the falsehoods and the deception of the unbelieving world, and instead that we would hold to the sweet honey and the precious gold of your scripture with all our heart and soul and strength, that we might be cleansed and purified and sanctified to look more like Christ. As your word is proclaimed, may it strengthen and equip the believer. May it convict and, and move to repentance those who do not know you yet, that they may see in you, in your holiness, Lord, the only way of salvation to turn to Christ and to be found in him, washed of their sins and transgressions and made white as snow by the power of his cleansing blood. We thank you, Father, for gathering us in your name. And I pray that you would change us, each one, conform us to the image of Christ our Lord, that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we consider your word this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, saints, members of the household of God, would you turn with me in your scriptures as you're able to Psalm 121 as we continue in our psalm series and the second in this particular collection that is Psalms of Ascent or Psalms of Ascending, Going Up and particularly in the history of the church, we understand these psalms to accompany those who would go up to worship. On their journey to Zion, the psalmist or the uh, singer of Psalm 121 would echo with his neighbors on the way, as we imagine, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from. What a privilege it is and a grace to gather in the name of Jesus today and consider his word. And it's incredible to consider the psalms in particular because the uniqueness of the genre, the poetry of the Bible, is such a beautiful and deep way to give to us aspects of this peace of God, for instance, in ways we may not otherwise appreciate. The title of this morning's message along these lines is Surpassing Peace. That promise of peace in our worship text this morning, that peace, may the peace that passes understanding fill your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that prayer for the church by Paul is spoken of in Psalm 121, this surpassing peace, that is peace that is stronger than anything that might seek to threaten it by way of our own hearts and the fallen world in which we live, the dangers that we face, 
There's a peace that is stronger than all these things, and the psalmist proclaims as much, even as we see a record of this throughout the Scripture, the testimony of the same. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to hold our souls accountable to the Prince of Peace. One of the names of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Sovereign, Himself is the Prince of Peace. That is, through Him and through Him alone is any true assurance of the soul. And so we exalt our Lord and we recognize these means through His Word today as we consider Psalm 121 under the theme, Surpassing Peace. As you're able and out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand today and hear the Scriptures proclaimed in your ears? This is a song of ascent, Psalm 121. Here is the Word of God, verse 1. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord will not strike you by day. The sun, excuse me, shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. Amen. Paul speaks of a peace that passes understanding, a peace that will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7, a portion of our worship text. This promise of superior peace via the gospel which inspired and encouraged the early church through means of this letter, and to us too as we read it, it was not a concept novel to the New Testament. No, this peace, is spoken, this peace, this surpassing peace, was spoken of long before. Let me give you a definition or a phrase that I think encompasses what the Scriptures in mean to convey when we read of peace that passes understanding. What is it? It is rest of soul, secured, in the covenant blessings of God. Surpassing peace, true peace, peace, true assurance. What is it? Rest of soul, secured in the covenant blessings of God. <clears throat> this is the theme explored long before Paul's writings in the Psalms of Ascent, and particularly our text today, Psalm 121. This, the second song of these, in this collection, answers the anguished, anguished cry of Psalm 120. Psalm 120 honestly portrays, in poetic form, the troubled soul of its author. You recall, he says in verse 1, In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Why was he in distress? Reasons are given. Verse 2, Lying lips, a deceitful tongue, from which he cries, Deliver me, O Lord. He says, furthermore, the deceitful tongue and the warrior's sharp arrows, these are the things that he faces, the perils and the dangers Furthermore, he is far from Zion. He lives among a people who do not share his convictions and his uh, desire to worship the Lord. He sojourns, that is to say, in Meshach and Kedar, places far away from Zion as it was geographically centered in Jerusalem at the time. Too long, he says, I have made my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but they are for war. You can hear him crying out, Oh, give me peace of mind. Oh, give me that surpassing peace, a peace that's stronger than my exile status in Meshach and Kedar, a peace that's stronger than the lying lips and deceitful tongue and the threat that they represent among the unbelievers, from the unbelievers in which I live and so forth. And then Psalm 121 answers, I lift my eyes to the hills. For where does my help come from? 
Where is this peace to be found? Cast your eyes to the hills. Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I think it's fruitful to see the way the Psalms are ordered. And in the providence of God, 120-121 exists as a great pair. The anguish of the soul honestly confessed, but then hope and help for the soul uh, pointed to in Psalm 121. And this is the theme of our study, then, therefore, today. The assurance of peace and where it comes from. The anguished cry of the psalmist in 120 is answered in 121. <clears throat> Supernatural peace. And uh, as we look at the psalms in this section, we're reminded that these are structured in a set. Psalm 120 and the next, 15 psalm, or the next 14 psalms are all to accompany those who have a heart that is oriented to the Lord. In going up to worship, it's this direction or perspective, this trajectory, and this picture in Scripture is throughout. We'll speak more of it in a moment. But this sort of ascendancy, this calling up out of the low things. This morning we are talking in the class, class with the young people how the enemy was condemned to eat dust, so to speak. And then, those, and then he, uh, his, of course, was crushed under the heel of the conquering Savior, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. So that's the picture, lowliness, dust, humiliation, condemnation, judgment, and wrath, and so forth. But up is to be lifted up, to ascend, to rise above, to be victorious, to, to be seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Mount Zion, the hill of God's abiding presence with His people, was that upward trajectory out of the lowliness and condemnation, the humiliation of our sin and the wrath and judgment we deserved and the squalor and the uh, depraved condition of our souls in humanity. No, the call is to go up, lift up your eyes to the hills, lift up your eyes to Zion from where your help, there your help comes. Each verse in this poem has a further beauty as well in the way it's structured. It takes up, that is, each verse takes up and expands a theme introduced in the previous verse. Without dwelling on this too much, it's just interesting to see how not only in the content of the words, but in the structure of the poem, we can see additional uh, facets of beauty. For instance, verse 1, <coughs> I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come from? And then that concept, that theme of help is taken up in the next verse. My help comes from the Lord <coughs> who made heaven and earth. Who is this Lord? Verse 3 tells us. Or what is this help? The nature of it. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And it goes on this way. There's sort of a progressive illumination, if you will. More and more light is shed as we read through the psalm. Each verse takes up and expands a theme introduced by the previous. <coughs> and this device almost carries us forward. It's a sort of poetic carrying the reader in his soul unto Zion, if you will. As the author explores these concepts, we find ourselves moved, moving along. And, then, and, the, and by this means, glories on the horizon become more clear, uh, come more clearly into view as the song progresses. <coughs> as the author explores concepts universal to the human condition, we may readily apply the discernment, <coughs> excuse me, apply the discipline of discernment to other promises of peace. So this is a useful application of this psalm. That is to say, there are many sources or many uh, authorities, false ones, who would say, this is how you secure the assurance of your soul. May your soul be secured in this promise of hope and salvation. And I should note, too, in passing that peace and salvation 
are closely related in Scripture. Be mindful and, uh, concern, and may it concern you when you hear promises of peace of mind or meditation or setting your soul at rest. These are popular notions today, but oftentimes the way that people pursue them is through <coughs> ungodly means, superstitious means, merely physical means, or new age and uh, type of means and cultish ways, basically. That is, pursuing means outside of what God has prescribed to bring us a cure for our anxiety, a cure for our anguish. God has ordained the ends and the means, and to pursue them by any other way is to seek for security of soul by idolatrous promises. Our author illustrates for us in Psalm 121 how we are to come to a place of a security and assurance of the soul. And therefore, he prepares us, equips us through the discipline of discernment to condemn and to recognize any counterfeit in this regard. Psalm 121 equips its readers to distinguish between legitimate and delusional notions of peace of mind. (coughs) May we be sharpened and equipped accordingly. So let us seek to sharpen then our discernment by studying a little more closely these eight verses under three headings or three main points. (coughs) At the top of your notes, you'll see this heading, the promise of surpassing peace in light of the following. Three main points today. And don't be uh, intimidated by this word. I'll explain a metaphysical perspective, number one. Secondly, an assurance illustrated. And thirdly, surpassing peace in light of perilous conditions. Number one, verses one and two, a metaphysical perspective. Surpassing peace and the promise thereof, that is, rest of soul secured in the covenant blessings of God. Let us consider this in light of a bigger perspective than just our experience and just our empirical realities, that is, things that we interact with with our senses. It's our day-to-day physical existence. No, let's consider this in a bigger perspective that is a metaphysical or a spiritual one. What does metaphysical mean? Relating to a reality beyond what is perceptible by our senses. We live in an age where materialism abounds. People assume that all that really is sure or real, verified, verifiable, tangible, or truthful is that which we can test in a laboratory, that which we experience by our senses. Well, is there peace to be found, true surpassing peace? Security for the soul to be found by means of this merely physical or material perspective. No. How will you ever be at peace if you don't know for certain in your soul that someone who knows everything and has all power at his disposal, an omniscient and omnipotent God, steadies the pillars of a chaotic earth? You will never be at peace. You will cling to thin uh, promises of hope supplied by other means, by fallible, fallen, sinful, ridiculous, absurd, and rebellious creatures seeking to, uh, to secure the conditions of our world, and their environment, and their future, their finances, their day-to-day lives by all these, uh, by all these insufficient means. You know, the television was on yesterday while I was visiting a couple going over some <clears throat> plans for some repair on their house. And of course, the news was streaming live from Israel. The nation of Israel is at war today. And this war what began just two days ago, as I understand it, when rockets from the Gaza Strip to the west there uh, were launched into, and then all of a sudden other 
you know, uh, forces started coming over and militants and so forth. And before you know it, hundreds of people are dead and there are hostages. And, and, uh, and then the minister of defense comes out and says we're at war. Could you imagine that situation? How would you possibly be at peace? What's well, a powder keg over there? As long as I can remember, peace in the Middle East has been an elusive promise and almost a joke because there seems to be conflict that is so deep between in the worldview of this group of people and that group of people that it cannot be solved by normal means. I mean, haven't we proven that to ourselves? We just need diplomacy. We need a great diplomat to go over and forge a new path forward. Has that worked? It has not. Will it? No. Short of the Prince of Peace, there will be no lasting or secured assurance. So will we defend, will we rely on our missile defense system to blast every rocket out? Well, there's hundreds of people that prove today that the defenses of Israel were insufficient to guard them against every peril that their neighbors who are agitated represent. And so you can see by this one example that if you don't trust the plans and purposes of a sovereign God to keep you, even through death, to pre present you blameless, as we've studied from the book of Jude, before in eternity, before the Lord, that there is no ultimate ground or hope for peace. We need a bigger perspective. Genesis 13, 10, 14 through 18, you'll recall this language of lifting up one's eyes. Lift up your eyes unto this wilderness, the Lord tells Abraham. The covenant promises of God give you the assurance that this is your inheritance. So Abraham lifts up his eyes to fields that are less fertile than Sodom and Gomorrah. And to a place that is relatively uninhabited, not civilized. There isn't rows and rows of vineyards. There isn't flocks as far as the eye can see. But in many ways, an untamed land and with the neighbors that may be hostile to him, that God nevertheless promises is his inheritance. But he must apprehend it by faith. Meanwhile, his nephew Lot, he has a different perspective, a more materialistic one. And he sees the flocks and herds on the horizon over by the cities of the plains. Never mind the fact that they are idol worshipers over there. The depravity has reached such a state that they live dangerously close to the judgment of God falling upon them at any moment because they and their corrupt society deserve it. I'm thinking more about my flocks and the future of my wealth and holdings. So Lot lifts up his eyes to Sodom and Gomorrah and the short-term gain that that area represents and moves there. And this is the difference. Where do we lift our eyes? The psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? A hill is hard to climb. A hill is not the easy valley that's lush and so forth. A hill may represent something that you have to believe by faith. It's an upward trajectory, something I've set my face towards, I haven't secured yet. Along the way, however, there's promises that no, secure your future this way, the tangible way and so forth. The psalmist orients his soul, however, upward in the song of ascent towards Zion, if you will, the place of God's reconciliation when a sufficient sacrifice is provided with a sinful man. That is where my help comes from. Consider this question. What captivates you? What holds your soul's attention? What are your sources of amusement, meditation, joy, satisfaction, curiosity, hope, security, fulfillment, and identity. That is, what holds your soul's attention? Or, to what do you lift up your eyes? The psalmist calls us, lift up your eyes to the hills. That is to say, 
in the fullness of redemptions pictured, lift up your eyes to the hill of Calvary, upon which the cross of Jesus Christ was set as a once-for-all sacrifice to pay for your sins. Lift up your eyes to the hill of Mount Zion fully realized in the new heaven and new earth where the Lord in His ascension, Jesus Christ, was given the title deeds of the nations knowing that in His future, according to His perfect law, in His perfect timing, is hope for all the tribes and tongues and nations, but they must bow before Jesus Christ. Lift up your eyes to this vision of hope for the future. Lift up your eyes to the hills. Guard your soul from false sources. Through amusement, meditation, joy, satisfaction, curiosity, hope, security, fulfillment, and identity in the things of this world. Short-term promises, the lush fields of Sodom and Gomorrah, do not let them captivate you. The temptations of blessings now at the cost of eternal hope is the short-term promise of the false covenant of the enemy. Do we lift up our eyes to the temporal promises of Sodom? Or do we lift our eyes in faith to the promises of God? This is the spiritual, if you will, the metaphysical perspective that Psalm 121 models for us. Lift up your eyes to the hills. In this we see, and I've referenced this before, I think it bears repeating, because it is so intrinsic to the theme of the Psalms of Ascent, or this upward trajectory of the eyes. I call this Eden's memory. Lift up your eyes to the hills. Heights and, culture, heights and the cultural memory of Eden's elevated plain. Recall in the book, uh, well, Ezekiel 28, 13 through 14, it uses Eden as an illustration in a prophetic oracle. And I mentioned this before, it bears repeating, and says that Eden was placed on a mountain. And I've painted this picture before, but I love to remind myself and you of it as well. Think of the banishment of Eden. The doors flung open, Adam and Eve are kicked out. The doors swing shut, and that guard, the seraphim, are, are set there with the flaming sword preventing re-entry. And so now, where do Adam and Eve go? Well, naturally, to the base of Eden's mountain. Perhaps not far from that. You know, later, a further castaway, you know, Cain is sent east of Eden. But for some time, it's conceivable that Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, lived in actually sight, physical sight, of Eden's door. Perhaps their evenings were dimly lit by that flaming sword on the hill just beyond their tents. Where would Abel set up his altar of sacrifice? Well, no doubt at the base of Eden's hill. In faith, offering this sacrifice, this slain animal, and somehow he knew by the revelation of the Lord and his obedience that in this represented one day a substitute sacrifice who would reopen that door that he may go back in, so to speak, to the abiding presence of God, to the favor and the reconciliation that Eden represented, who would that sacrifice be? He had heard through his parents that there would come one, the seed of the woman. One day there will be a human being who will arise who will conquer and stomp on Satan's head once and for all and destroy the enemy of our souls. And so the orientation of Abel's soul as he offered that acceptable sacrifice was to the hills from where his help comes from, so to speak. It's this elevated uh, a picture of the difference between the lowliness and condemnation of sin and the unattainable, aside from the perfect sacrifice, and the hero who would come later, the Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus Christ, that elevated plane, that hope, that heavenly existence, that restoration of Eden and more. Were there any shortcuts? No. Shortcuts to restore what was lost in Eden abound. The promises. This is the false hope that represents sin and its temptation. 
the fields of Sodom, as we mentioned, and so forth. But they, they abound today as they did then, since the fall. In our day, this explains the misguided, aspirational orientation of the human spirit. That which inspired, it's the same spirit that inspired the architects of Babel. To lift up your eyes to the hills? No, build our own hill. Await for God's ladder coming down, prophesied in Jacob's dream, the Son of Man. Jesus said, upon, this, upon me, the Son of Man, you will now see angels ascending and descending. The fulfillment of Genesis 28. No, let's build our own. So the Tower of Babel post-flood pyramids speaks to a religious orientation of the soul and a counterfeit religion, and a false hope to ascend Eden's hill. Today, one world government, transhumanism, even colonization of space. Is it wrong to colonize space? No, but I think to do so rightly, you have to assume that the dominion mandate extends to you know, other reaches of the cosmos. In other words, you can colonize space in fulfillment of taking dominion over the moon, I suppose, or even over Mars if such a thing were possible. But let's be honest, today, this aspirational orientation of mankind to transcend the limitations of this mere earthly existence because somehow Mars set, holds out hope for us to be elevated, what is it? It's just the new version of the Tower of Babel, man lifting up his eyes to hope to escape the perils of this earth because he knows intrinsically in his soul that he is yet under the curse of sin. He knows that even the environment conspires against him, so he seeks to be free. And therefore, this climate change agenda is an obsessive, compulsive, religious impulse of the unbelieving modern pagan who seeks to be free from the curse that nature represents. And there is only one way to be free from the curse. Lift your eyes to the hill of Calvary. That's where your help comes from. Do not lift your eyes to the false notions of hope. For the believer... Eden is fulfilled and surpassed in Jesus Christ. Who is he? The second Adam. This is the perspective of Psalm 121 fulfilled in Jesus' work on Calvary. Furthermore, creature, uh, creature versus creator. This perspective informs the psalmist's song and his soul as he writes in verse 2. He says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Help comes from the one who is over, who is the creator, who made and engineered and ordered and instructed and gave his will and plan and purposes revealed in scripture for that which he made, including us creatures. Yes, made in his image, nevertheless created. Help comes from where the creator of the cosmos doesn't come within the cosmos. This acknowledgement summarizes the fundamental difference between true worship and idolatry. Do we look within the created realm and our experience, the cosmos, for hope and help? Or do we look beyond the surpassing peace from its author and from its sovereign? So I'm teaching a, uh, a class for homeschool, critical thinking and apologetics, and I've been studying a bit. And my first class is on worldview. There's four significant questions I ran across from an apologist back in the day, and he said, answers to these questions tend to shape people's worldviews. They're just a little shorthand for the big questions in life. Origin, morality, meaning, and destiny. Origin, where do we come from? Morality, what is right and what's wrong? Meaning, why are we here? Destiny, where are we going? The answers to those questions, you know, whether people think about it that much or it's just kind of a default orientation of their soul, basically shape their worldview, or it's a good shorthand to give an idea of what their view, their perspective is. 
The Bible gives us answers to all these so clearly, does it not? Psalm 121.2 reminds us of origins, for instance. Where does our help come from? From the one who made heaven and earth. Where did we come from? We came from the loving, sovereign, perfect, awesome plan of God who made us in his image. Therefore, to him we are accountable, answers them or provides a basis for morality question as well. He is the one who is the standard. By virtue of his created authority, he determines how we are designed and therefore what is right and wrong, morality. And in this, of course, bringing glory to him, we find meaning in our destiny. We've already spoken of that. Thus, this creator, uh, creator and creature distinction is essential perspective to understanding where surpassing peace comes from. If we imagine that peace uh, sufficient for the perils we face is contained within our experience or at our grasp, uh, we will be forever condemned to live a life of anxiety and hopelessness, futility and delusion. The author of Psalm 121 points us the direction where true surpassing peace comes from. It comes from beyond our reach. It comes from God reaching down to man on Calvary's hill. Lift up your eyes to the hills. There your help will come. Second major point this morning, the promise of surpassing peace in light of assurance illustrated. So we might ask ourselves, what kind of security and assurance comes from knowing that our souls are hid in Christ, ultimately this passage fulfilled, or knowing that God, the creator of the universe, has stooped low and condescended to us to provide for us the means of grace that we might be safe. Well, the author describes this kind of security this way, verses 3, 4, and 5. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So three pictures that illustrate assurance. Two to the positive, one to the negative. Feet, sleep, and shade. When the Bible speaks of feet, what does it mean? Turn with me. To Psalm 18, again here, the Lord's peace is such that he will not, or we receive peace when we realize that his uh, grace and security in him is such that he will not let our foot be moved, and he will keep us. Psalm 18 is, expounds in poet, poetically this picture of sure-footedness, if you will. Feet in Scripture especially as a poetic device in the psalm, they represent a sure-footed stability, a balance, a consistency, an endurance, a security in spite of peril, danger, or trial. And this uh, imagery in Psalm 121 echoes an extensive treatment of these pictures in Psalm 18. I'll just reference a few. Notice verse 2. The psalmist said, says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So a lot of imagery referring to strength there. But he builds on this, verse 16. <clears throat> and he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me up out of many waters. So you see there, you have a rock versus waters, environment or place of footing, if you will, and the contrast between the two. Next verse, 17. He rescued from my, me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. 31. For it is the Lord, who is God, but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? There again, rock. 33. He made my feet like the feet of the deer and set me secure on the heights. There's that footing language 
feet like a deer. <clears throat> Have you guys seen any uh, those YouTube videos? You know, sometimes titled something like uh, Mountain Goat Defies Gravity. And the mountain goat is in a dangerous place, super steep precipice. But somehow these creatures designed by God with special equipment like feet, sense of balance, and ability to choose these small places to find footing, those, uh, those goats can virtually dance on cliffs. And it doesn't seem like there's a fear in, in them. There's just a confidence that they are designed to traverse this terrain. That which for any lesser creature would represent a place of great peril and just fall immediately to their death. A goat or a deer that is specially designed for this by our God, the Creator, has, has given them sure footing in spite of the sheer rock face in which they live. Who is our rock? The Lord. That is to say that God has designed for us a place that is not without peril, however it is secure. And who is our God? The one who makes our feet like that of a deer to negotiate the difficulties and perils of life. He makes my feet like that of a deer. He sets me secure on the heights. So you see how this helps illuminate the picture. 36, you've given a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. Isn't this beautiful? It's this assurance of uh, security, even though we face perils and difficulty. So trust the Lord to give you a firm place to stand and trust him to give you sure footing there. How does he do so? He equips us through the means of his word to stand secure, even though it seems that our life might be threatened. I thrust, uh, excuse me, what's our next verse here? Just look at verse uh, 38, or uh, we'll go to 46 here. In Psalm 18, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. So in summary, this assurance illustrated by feet or the picture of feet and sure footing. A great companion text. You could go through the whole thing in your own time. Psalm 18. David refers to this metaphor in multiple ways throughout the psalm. That is to say, to have our feet secure is to have a secure place to stand. And in this, God is our rock. And to have our feet secure means that we are drawn from a place of peril and insecurity. We are drawn from the sinful state as, by, um, as though a man was rescued from drowning. You know, there's no secure place to stand on a stormy sea. But David says he was drawn out of the water. And this verse is quoted by Jonah in the fish. When the sea that would otherwise swallow him, God provided him sure footing through this whale to survive the waters that would otherwise judge and drown mankind. And it recalls, of course, the picture of the flood as well. The seas and these insecure places represent the consequences of our sin and removing from underneath us all sure footing. However, God himself is the rock, the place to stand, an anchor for the soul, a source of reference. The rock pictures that which is enduring, steadfast, immovable, that which is a strong foundation, security. And furthermore, our feet, even though he's called us to do certain things under dangerous conditions, nevertheless, he makes them like a deer traversing danger, where we can defy the gravity of what would otherwise uh, trip us up when we cling to the word of God for the difficult challenges of life. And then, for, and then finally, this picture, he places our enemies under our feet. This is the hope that salvation represents, assurance illustrated in these sure-footed analogies. What about sleep? 
what, what would threaten this kind of peace or this peace that would come by knowing that God gives our feet sure footing in dangerous places? Well, one, <clears throat> one way to picture that is if our Lord was asleep and was not watching over us every moment of every day. To this, the psalmist responds in verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. <clears throat> he who keeps you will not slumber, in verse 3. Sleep or slumber. To be asleep in this sense is to be insuffic- insufficiently, or it, it, it's a picture of insufficiency, or to be preoccupied, distracted, uh, to be uh, oblivious, to have finite resources, subject to limitations, not alert. Our, this is not our Lord. Under His watchful eye, not a single enemy, not a single danger escapes His attention. He keeps Israel. How does He do so? By His law and word. His law, His word, is the revealed ground of covenantal certainty. These are universal. and They're sufficient to keep us. Who is our rock and how has He revealed Himself? God is a rock and He's revealed Himself in Scripture. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of God remains eternally. <clears throat> Take away this covenantal framework of mutual obligation to the Lord based upon His Word, and what are you left with? You're left with an insecure society. You're left as a victim of every wind of doctrine. And the relationships, not only between God and man, between man and man, break down. Jesus says in response to the question, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Every aspect of your being, your perspective, and the orientation of your soul, you should lift up your eyes to the Lord and His revelation through Scripture. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And therein, by the way, is the constitution for a secure and assured society. If you ask yourself, what is the application of Psalm 121 for a people, for a community, for a nation? It is this, that they would love the Lord their God and extol Him as the rock. And then secondly, that they would love one another. The Lord does not sleep. He is sufficient in this regard. Through His law and word, He has established everything that is needful to secure our, uh, to secure our society in a way that would lead to, popular term, human flourishing, safety among neighbors. You take away this, by the way, and you have much of the degradation that we're experiencing today. Windows will soon be behind bars. Are there not areas of our cities where windows are being boarded up? Why? Because we're less able to trust our neighbor. Why? Because we're, we see ourselves less accountable, to, accountable and there's less fear of God among the populace who is watching over us when no one else seems to be looking. If not God, then I have permission, excuse, and and less accountability to act out my base and sinful desires. Under conditions like this, police presence must increase. There must be an increase in top-down control to maintain some semblance to secure the peace by force. Commerce will be stifled. The economy will be affected by suspicion. We don't have any assurance that people will keep their word. They have a low view of covenant. They don't have a relationship to their word, inspired by God's relationship to His word. And therefore, their word becomes worthless, and trust in human relationships begin to degrade. Neighbors are just as likely our enemies as they are our allies in this thing we call life. Faith in institutions is fundamentally undermined, and every attempt to shore it up becomes just a futile attempt and a short-term idea that in the end just 
increases the foolishness. Foolishness of what? Seeking a security and assurance and a place to stand. Building on sand rather than the rock and disregarding the Lord and His Word as the only sufficient uh, source to keep us. So, the word, so this uh, ever-present, always alert sufficiency of the Lord, illustrated by one who never sleeps, demonstrates to us in poetic form the keeping power of God's order. The keeping power of God's order. God has accounted for everything. He knows all. He knows the heart of man better than you know your own heart. And as a result, you can trust his words, even if you don't always understand. And when you take this step of faith as a society or an individual to build your life on his word and on his law and on the rock, that unshakable, immovable framework that he has established, the blessings of the covenant begin to abound. The last reference in this passage actually speaks to that right from Deuteronomy 28. As we lift our eyes up as a people to the Lord, as we cast our gaze not on ourselves or these false claims of assurance, but to the hill of Calvary and all it represents from where our help comes from, then our feet will be secure. And we will have the assurance that we can sleep in peace and slumber because one who never sleeps is watching over us. Oh, the curse of never being able to fall asleep because you don't know if you, if that, if you will die. Please guard over me. The uh, guard says, uh, he's like, please watch and let us sleep in stages. Well, life is like that. How do you ever sleep? How do you ever find a place of peace or security in the soul? Well, the answer is, if there is a guard who sees all and has all power, who never rests and who never sleeps, but always keeps his word and watches out for you, this is our Lord. Feet, sleep, thirdly, shade. Assurance illustrated. The Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. Whatever could this mean? Well, in a similar way to what we described before, the next verse that illuminates this picture of shade protects us from what? Well, from the sun. Verse 6, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. If you wanted to study this picture by some cross-references, Psalm 91.1, Isaiah 25.4, it's a, maybe a more common imagery of protection, shade from the burning sun, in the times that these words were written than it is now. But we pair this with the next verse and we realize that this shade refers to the protection of God himself, that is to say, provides from the threat represented by the sun. In verse 6, he is our shade, furthermore, on your right hand. So if the sun has the power to heat, uh, you know, inflict heat stroke or to burn you, you know, we put on sunscreen to shade us, to some degree protect us from the burning force of the sun. Um, if we have uh, water and we stay hydrated, that is also a protection against the dehydrating influences of the sun and so forth. So the sun can represent a threat. Of course, if the sun is the only thing that shines, there's never a cloud in the sky, then the sun and its beating down dries up the land, and thus we have the threat of famine. It is the shade of the clouds that the Lord sends in and the soothing rain to rejuvenate the soil. That is from the Lord, who is the sovereign provider, even in these elements of the weather and creation, that it causes the land to bloom. Why? Because he is our shade on our right hand. Our right hand. What does this mean? Well, again, in Scripture, you compare it to other ideas of protection. And imagine a warrior dressed for battle. And in his left, if you're right-handed, uh, kids, what would you put on your left arm? If you're right-handed, 
Just think of an old school warrior, like a knight or something. What would you put on your left hand? Armor. Armor, good. A little more specific. I think I heard it. Did someone say shield? There you go. All right, so you're right-handed. You got your shield on your left hand. What's in your right hand, kids? Awesome. What's in your right hand? A sword. What's on your head? Nice. What's right here? Breastplate. Awesome. Yeah, we kind of remember the armor of God in that picture. So, yes. But think of that. Your sword is at your right hand. Your shield's at your left. Well, what if some archers, like, and so anyway, these guys are marching to battle. If you were the opposite army and you had a whole bunch of archers, bowmen, where would you place them? We'd go over to this side. Because as these armies are marching over here, you know that they're less able to protect their right flank because they have a sword in their right hand. So, the be- so how can you shield your entire body when you only have, you know, you're limited with these two arms and these two implements? Well, the answer is to have a shield bearer, an armor bearer. And so if you were a rich guy or a powerful guy or an important warrior, you sometimes would have a guy your a lackey, who would, your sidekick, who would go into, you, into battle with you, and he would actually provide another shield, where? At your right hand. So this is a picture of the most secure position in battle, the full armaments to protect you from threat. And what if the Lord was your shield bearer? Do you think any of Satan's blows would strike you? The Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. The Lord is your armor bearer. That is, in this picture, a sufficient source to guard you, even from the threat of death itself, to lead you past the last enemy unto eternal life. This is the assurance of the Lord, where surpassing peace is truly to be found, illustrated in these pictures. Quite beautiful, is it not? As we see this, we recognize that Psalm 21 uh, illustrates a sort of a sufficiency that is powerful and it's tangibly, you know, given to us in these pictures. The final point this morning, we've considered surpassing peace in light of this big picture perspective, metaphysical or spiritual. We've considered it in light of these pictures that the psalmist gives to illustrate feet, sleep, and shade. And then let's consider finally perilous conditions. Answering the question, we should be at peace because the Lord protects us from the following. Nature's dominion, wickedness and evil, and thirdly, the course of life. Verses 6 through 8. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The sun and moon are fixtures of day and night, of course, in the created order. They stand for seasons. And the day-to-day, the dominion of nature, so to speak. The sun was commissioned by our Creator to rule over the day. And the moon, so to speak, as a sentinel to keep watch overnight. They're representative of the dominion of nature. Now something changed. Before man fell into sin... Who is in charge of nature? Adam was, or the moon, or the sun, or, or the... Was he subject to the elements? Were the elements subject to him? Well, the answer is, the elements were subject to Adam. Take dominion over nature, and so forth. But then something happened, the fall, into sin. And now part of the curse was that nature was going to inflict pain. Nature was going to be harder to subdue. Nature itself will represent a threat, a perilous condition, that is going to be hard for you to survive. However... At the root of our calling and at the root of the assurance that comes from the Lord is that through him, that calling to take dominion over nature, not live under its curse and peril, can be realized in Christ. And thus, the Lord in Christ, our second Adam, 
who took dominion over everything, even our sin on our behalf, restores us to a place of confidence and security to face the dominion of nature victoriously. So think of it this way. What is the root of mankind's anxiety? We're all familiar with that term, anxiety. Many of us in one way or sense have wrestled with it or perhaps wrestle with it. What's at the very root of that? I suggest it runs so deep in the soul of humanity that most basically understood our anxiety might, just stem, might stem, in fact, from that threat and toll of nature's dominion over us. What fear do the, does the conditions in which I live represent for my future? The threat of nature's dominion. This is a perennial source of anxiety. It troubles the soul. It is something that afflicts us on the deep level of consciousness and can be a difficult enemy to face. On the other side, taking dominion as equipped and commanded represents victory over what otherwise would paralyze us through anxiety. So this is here poetically pictured as danger that comes by way of day or danger that comes by way of night. The psalmist stands opposed to those who would say, we are at the mercy of the sun. A sort of fatalism. You know, in the olden days, like the sun represented the source of life or the weather was the ultimate. And whether or not, the, you know, they were, their fate was basically in the hands of nature. Is this idea exists with us today? Well, it certainly does. I mean, the latest iteration of this, I may have mentioned it recently, but it's such a good illustration. I'm going to use it again. Recently, the uh, Agricultural Department of Ireland in Dublin they suggested uh, a policy or a, an, a way to deal with the threat of the sun and the threat of the moon, that is nature's dominion over us and climate change and what it represents as the slaughter. And this is our idea. Let's slaughter 200,000 cattle. Well, as someone rightly recognized, I was listening to a podcast recently and said, oh, so this is what the uh, resurrection of the old goddess Gaia looks like, that is Mother Earth. So if we slaughter, you're telling me that if we sacrifice 200,000 cows, that we will be delivered from the threat of the weather? What does this sound like? Does it not sound like the ancient pagan rituals of old? We just cast it in new sophisticated terms. Oh, it's very scientific. No, it's climate change. Oh, we got to secure our future. All these things, nature's dominion represents a threat. Oh, we have to sacrifice 200,000 cows to this false god in order to assure that climate change will be held at bay. Oh, really? Do you guys think it'll work? No, of course it won't. No more than those sacrifices on Mount Carmel and the cutting oneself of all the frantic hysterical priests who had the power to call down fire from heaven to effect their sacrifice there. No, but the one true God who is Lord over nature, the creator of heaven and earth, can intervene at his will and choosing and give us rain that falls on the just and the unjust according to his compassionate hand at this time. And it is he who we should see it comes from. We are delivered from the dominion of nature because of the one who who created nature in the first place and can trust all the while that he has purposes, even in the difficulties, the hurricanes, and the hardships that we go through. Why? Because we are delivered from the threat and anxiety of the dominion of nature and that source of, uh, of just troubling peril and that inescapable sense that we are subject to the fate of our environment. And we are delivered from it because we worship one who created by his sovereign word in the beginning, the heavens and the earth and separated the land from the waters. And that which was without form and void, he ordered according to his word and power. And he set the course of the heavenly bodies to establish day and night. 
the rising and the setting of the sun and the seasons whereby we are to order our calendar and to trust that God who orderly organizes the fine-tuning of all the cosmos also has the future in his hand. Psalm 121 says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. We lift our eyes to the hills, the creator of heaven and earth. From where does our help come from? The one who is over all these things. Secondly, we are delivered from wickedness and evil. Oh, what a powerful promise. Verse 7, The Lord will keep you from evil. The Lord will keep you from all evil. Wow. He will keep your life. So this verse confronts the notions the notion that we are mere subjects of the forces of nature and fate by our own control. And, and uh, we are subject uh, to those forces and also that we are subject to the fate of those around us. But is there one who controls and sears the hearts of man? Is there, is there one who is sovereign over the wickedness and the evil and the fallout of this world? Is there one who can secure our sustenance, our livelihood, who controls the seasonal conditions that are represented by the day? Is there one who is bigger than the unforeseen forces that are represented by the night? Night, darkness. So we're entering into the ha Halloween season, right? So there's going to be all of these movies that play to man's base desire of a fearful mystery abounding at night. Why do horror movies sell? Because they make us afraid. Why do they make us afraid? Because they're tempted in our fallenness to believe that evil is sovereign over God. We're tempted in our fallenness to believe that evil is sovereign over God over God, and that this world is ordered and directed, and we are slaves to, and at the fate of the wicked intentions of malicious forces represented by the night. When night falls, we can't see, and thus we are vulnerable and subject to all these dangers, the unbelieving heart tells us. These unforeseen perils, this malicious intentions, deceptive purposes, and uh, forces of evil, the mysterious causes, the paranormal. We are not to be found among a people who shudder in fear at the so-called sovereignty of evil. No, why? Because we serve the Lord who keeps us from all evil and will keep our life. So kids, those of you who suffer sometimes from nightmares, where do those uh, ideas in the night come from? Well, they come from this thought that is really scary that certain things might destroy me when it's dark or at night, or they may harm my family and so forth. You kids know what this is like. What's the best way to fight these thoughts? Well, go to Psalm 121, memorize it, and remind yourself each night when you fall asleep that the sun shall not strike you by day, the moon will not strike me by night, the Lord will keep me from all evil, and he will keep my life. Here, you will find deliverance. This is the source of your peace of mind so that you can sleep well at night and be delivered from nightmares. Lift up your eyes to the hills. Don't let the enemy lift up your eyes to what you're afraid of. But trust the Lord. Pray. Pray with your parents. Pray with your pastor. Pray with somebody that you trust to say, I need help. I need the Lord to lift my eyes up beyond the things I fear that give me anxiety so that I can trust that He is Lord over anything that I'm afraid of. Psalm 121 is for adults, but it's for you kids too. This wickedness and evil need not capture our souls, hold its attention as if it were a force we could not uh, be victorious over. In Christ, we are. Yahweh, <clears throat> the covenant keeper, whose name is revealed in this passage, he will keep us from all evil. Evil in three categories. Ultimately, the consequences of eternal judgment. So this is the evil 
uh, or this is the consequences of evil, that is to say. That is, uh, the evil that uh, is involved, or there's different uh, ways to illustrate this category, but it's the fallenness of the world in which we live, and then that ultimate judgment that befalls man unless they repent, the consequences of evil. In Christ we are delivered from this. In the gospel, which has the power to wash away sin by the power of Jesus' blood, we are delivered from the consequences of evil, all evil. We are delivered from the sinfulness of our own heart by the same means. The evil that would constrict us and, and, and blind our eyes and slip and cause our feet to slip so we will uh, fall down the perilous precipice of life, not having that sure footing of the Lord at heart and not standing upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. We are delivered from this evil, the sinfulness of our own heart in Christ as we submit to Him, embrace His Word, and His course of sanctification. We receive that sure footing the psalmist talks about. And we, excuse me, are also delivered from the sinful intentions of others. That is to say, there's, it's not the case that we would expect never to experience collateral damage, if you will, from a sinful world, but it ultimately does not have the power to affect us. You know, we see this kind of faith among the martyrs illustrated where even pushed to the very brink where their soul, or I'm sorry, their life is required of him, they prove in their faith-filled confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and then being ushered into eternity that the enemy, the evil of our persecutors and Satan and all his forces had no power over our soul. He cannot touch our soul if our soul is hid in Christ Jesus. Thus, we're delivered from the sinful intentions of others. And by the way, there are many times, more than you know or could count if you did know, where God has delivered you from the sinful intentions of others. Why is this world not as wicked as it could be? Think of the depravity of the human heart. It is by the grace of God holding back the course of evil that could overwhelm us in a flood and create such a world that we could not leave our house without a gun fully loaded, aimed in front of us, looking both ways. Fortunately, we are not in this place of peril right now merely because or exclusively because the grace of God and His providence has kept at bay the possibility of wickedness overtaking us excuse me, as a flood. We don't deserve it. It is His grace, but we ought to acknowledge and affirm that. We know that this is one more evidence that the Lord keeps us from all evil. Finally, the course of life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In closing, turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. Just in case the bases weren't covered in these two references, nature's dominion and evil, we find this all-encompassing promise that comes from the law. That's Deuteronomy 28.6 that is cited in this text, one of these uh, foundational texts uh, in the law of God. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror and with signs and wonders. It goes on to say that he has brought them to this place of uh, overflowing prosperity. And... Uh, I'm trying to find the reference here where the Lord will protect your going out and your coming in. Perhaps it's in, uh, I'll read a few of these other references in the meantime here. In verse 9, he brought us uh, into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, um, which you have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord has given you, you and your house, you and the Levite, and the sojourner that is over you. 
That's chapter 26. That's why I couldn't find the verse I was looking for. I'm sorry. And so uh, here we are actually in, in chapter 28, verse 6. Blessed be, uh, we'll back up to 4. Blessed be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. So the uh, coming in and the going out, this course of life promise. This is, in context, a reference to, again, this security of soul, soul secured in the covenant blessings of God. And Deuteronomy 28 is all about that. So as you read further, you can see the context. Do this on your own time, but in Deuteronomy 28, the context of this quotation in Psalm 121 presumes the conditions of covenant, that is, living and light of the Word of God. When we do so, God establishes the conditions such that we thrive in terms of God's favor as the blessing of obedience for a people and a society under God's law and order. So this, uh, just remember that, that it is not a, a promise independent of a context in Psalm 121 that the Lord will keep us and will bless us and secure us and give us surpassing peace. That, such that the Lord will keep and guard our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. But that promise comes in the context of the thriving blessing and the, uh, the favor of the Lord when we follow His word and His ways. As we do so, we as a people, a small band such as we are, are a light and an example to others. That Deuteronomy 4 promise becomes true in some way in our part that others, the unbelievers, might envy the godly order that God has established among us. And then this principle applies successively all the way up to a nation and even a world. The Lord will keep our going out and our coming in in accordance with our living in light of the way that He has made, a rest of soul secured in the covenant blessings of God, a thriving in terms of God's favor as the blessing of obedience for the society under God's law and order. So these perilous conditions that we might face anything in the course of life, wickedness or evil or nature, nature's dominion, they have no hold, no authority ultimately over our souls if we are in Christ. As we acknowledge this in prayer this morning, let us pray that God would give us grace to apply these scriptures. Father, we thank you for the revelation of surpassing peace in light of your word revealed to us through the pages of scripture from Deuteronomy all the way through to Philippians, Psalm 121, these passages, passages we've considered today. Help us, Lord Jesus, to lift up our eyes to the hill of Calvary from where our help comes from. Lord, help us to turn our eyes from those promises of short-term help and hope in the fields of Sodom. Help us as we follow you and apply your word and live in light of your truth to have secure and assured footing as feet of a deer on the rock of Christ. And remind us that in so, Lord, in this you have, you have lifted us from the sinking consequences of our sin and place our feet in a sure place. Lord, I pray if there are any lost in the hearing of this message, as we have held out from your word, the only place where the soul can be assured, I pray that they would turn from their idols and false sense of security and assurance to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who established hope on the hill of Calvary where Jesus Christ, 
our Savior was crucified, and then later resurrected and ascended for his people. May we live in light of him. May he be glorified as we close this service in more worship. In Jesus' name, amen.